Welcome back again, just a short podcast pertaining to topic seven, uh, where we talk about discovery. And this particular podcast, I'm going to have a chat with you about uh, the concept of privilege, legal profession privilege, which is a huge topic in and of itself, and you can only really scratch the surface of in this subject. Um, It will intersect with a number of subjects for you in your law degree, including Uh, evidence law, but also in relation to professional legal conduct and how you have obligations as a solicitor with respect to the management of privilege. Obviously, it's really important here for us to consider in civil procedure because it determines what documentation might have to be uh, produced or over which you can claim privilege and not produce in pretrial discovery. So it's important to have an understanding of the principles of client legal profession privilege and to understand the origins and law surrounding this. So the origin of privilege lies in public policy. It predated legislation by a long way and the rules of evidence, but it has been adopted in legislation as well. So we have to work with both common law and with legislation. The common law has long protected a party's right to object to the compulsory disclosure or discovery of material over which they are entitled to assert legal professional privilege. Now, it's important to note that privilege belongs to the client and not to the lawyer. Privilege covers confidential communications. And when we think about communications, we should also consider the word document. So communications can be all sorts of things, electronic, media, written, spoken, that are brought into existence for the purposes of obtaining legal advice or in contemplation of actual or anticipated litigation. Now, the reason we have privilege is that, uh, as a matter of policy, the idea that some things, particularly those things pertaining to legal advice, ought to be sacrosanct and not discovered by another party so that parties can be full and frank in disclosing information to their lawyer, all of the details, and know that the lawyer will keep that not only confidential, but it will not be required to be produced and used against that person in litigation. So that's the purpose behind claiming privilege. Legal profession privilege, um, there are a number of types of privilege, obviously, public policy privilege as well, and those aspects are dealt with in your subject side. I'm just going to focus on the two classifications of legal profession privilege, and that is advice privilege and litigation privilege. Now, this distinction reflects the position of common law, and it's also maintained in sections 118, advice privilege, and 119, litigation privilege, of the Uniform Evidence Law and that's been adopted in New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, and the Northern Territory. Legal professional privilege uh, protection is afforded specifically in relation to interrogatories and other pretrial procedures uh, which have disclosure requirements. So have a look at section 131, capital A of the Evidence Act of New South Wales, which defines a disclosure requirement um, as including pretrial discovery. So what this means under the Evidence Act is that a court is able to adjudicate or determine an objection to production of material in pre-trial disclosure based on assertion of privilege. So that includes ruling on whether material might be privileged in orders for discovery, notices to produce, subpoenas for production and interrogatories, etc., Now, like confidentiality, privilege facilitates that full and frank disclosure of information between lawyers and clients, and no adverse inference can be drawn by a court where privilege is properly claimed over material. 
So the fact you won't discover it means uh, that no inference can be made of a negative nature that you haven't. The nature of communications over which privilege can be claimed include, uh, as I said before, electronic, paper, oral, audio and visual, provided they are communications, and provided they meet the purpose of the dominant purpose test for the reason that that communication came about. Um, now, let's consider what dominant purpose actually is. For a communication to be protected by privilege, it has to have been made, that's the communication, for the dominant purpose of obtaining legal advice or for the dominant purpose of in contemplation of litigation, that is either litigation that is on foot or anticipated reasonably. And your authority for dominant purpose is the very well-known Commissioner of Australian Federal Police and ProPend, and also SO Australia Resources and the Commissioner of Taxation. For a communication to be subject to privilege, it must firstly be confidential, and secondly, created for that dominant purpose of obtaining legal advice or in contemplation of legal proceedings. Now, just because a document's titled privileged doesn't mean that it is legally privileged. When a claim is challenged in relation to privilege, the courts will look at the document and they will look behind the form of the document and consider the substance of it and the purpose for which it was created. So sending documents to lawyers with the intention of attracting legal professional privilege doesn't establish the privilege. And practitioners have to ensure that there is a proper basis from which to assert a claim of legal profession privilege for their client. Now, if privilege is claimed over a communication that's clearly not privileged, that's an abuse of process. And normally that can see a cost order made against the solicitor. When determining disputes over privilege, the court will, as I said, look at the documents and they may rule, for example, that part of the communication is privileged and part of it ought to be discovered. Now, I'll give you an example of where that might happen. So there might be a letter between a solicitor and a client that's clearly privileged and not required to be produced, but it might contain an annexure or a dis, uh, enclosure that is not privileged. And so the court may order that the enclosure be discovered, but the document itself not be. How does the other party know that exists? Well, it's disclosed in your list of documents and you've claimed privilege over it and you've specified the nature of the privilege you are claiming. Client legal professional privilege doesn't come to an end at the end of the litigation or the end of the retainer between the solicitor and the client. It also doesn't come to an end when the client dies. In fact, it exists for a long time until it ceases to be privileged. The right to assert privilege after a client dies passes to the legal personal representative of the client. For corporate clients, a company can certainly possess client legal professional privilege. And if that company becomes insolvent, the right to the privilege rests with the liquidator, who may choose to exercise that right to assert privilege or to waive it under the powers in legislation in corpse law where they can uh, litigate in the name of the company. Now, a party may inintentionally or inadvertently waive their right to privilege over communications. Waiver of privilege can be express or implied. Express waiver should be done with the client's instructions and consent. And again, that's because it's the client who owns the privilege and who can instruct that it be waived. A solicitor should never do this without client instructions. A client may exercise their right to maintain a claim over privilege 
and may do so over some documents and not others. They can choose. Obviously, they choose based on the legal advice that you give them. Privilege may also be lost through the law imputing an implied waiver of privilege. And there's a number of ways that privilege may be unintentionally lost. So under the Uniform Evidence Law, waiver of privilege is determined by the test established at section 122. Have a look at that provision. For matters outside of the evidence law, then the common law will apply. And we still use the common law to apply the provisions of the Evidence Act. Implied waiver will be found by a court where privileged material is used essentially in a manner that results in it being unjust to the other party to continue to maintain the privilege, even if using it in that manner was unintended. So in this regard, have a look at Justice Dean's judgment in the Attorney General of the Northern Territory and Maurice, a 1986 decision of the High Court. Consider also the case of the High Court of Mann and Carnell, a 1999 decision. The test for inadvertent waiver is what is fair and just to the parties in the proceedings. And a court will always inquire whether the party asserting the claim for privilege has, by disclosure or reference to the privilege material, acted in a manner that's inconsistent with maintaining the privileged nature of that communication. And the High Court explained that in Mann and Carnell. Serving documentation amounts to a waiver of privilege. See Cadbury Schweppes and Amcor. And referring to privileged documentation in pleadings or affidavits uh, may not necessarily constitute a waiver of privilege. It depends. It depends on whether the content of the privileged communication has been repeated in the pleadings and affidavit. And again, it depends on whether the test of waiver has been met. See SQMB and Minister for Immigration and Multicultural and Indigenous Affairs. And again, Attorney General Anne Maurice. Now, what happens if you accidentally produce privileged material in discovery? So let's say a subpoena for production or a notice to produce and you accidentally include privileged documentation. Is that a waiver of privilege? Well, not always. And indeed, a court may actually order that the documentation be returned to the party over whom privilege is asserted or prevent reliance on that material by an opposing party. Indeed, your Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules actually contain provisions of what to do should you be given um, inadvertently confidential information, and that includes privileged information, and you're actually required to destroy it, advise the party who has accidentally sent it, and ensure that you do not rely on it or read it any further once you realise it's privileged. What about disclosure of privileged material to experts? Well, frequently experts are briefed to provide opinions or reports in the course of litigation. Where privileged material is used to brief that expert, privilege will not be lost just simply because the expert's been briefed with it. However, if the expert provides evidence or a report that's based on that material and requires that material to form their view, so if the material informs their view, then yes, this is likely to constitute a waiver of privilege. Uh, see Great Atlantic Insurance Company and Home Insurance Co and also Attorney General and Maurice again. So obviously what you brief an expert with is really important and you probably should make the assumption that if you're going to brief an expert with certain documentation, such as witness statements and so forth, that you really are waiving privilege over those and you should consider that fact that they may be called for in production. Certainly tactically in litigation, if an expert report is referring to certain documentation as being uh, provided to them for their briefing, 
I would be calling for production of it and I would like to have the argument as to whether or not that's privileged. Now, let's talk about without prejudice communication because we often see letters floating around that are without prejudice. What does that mean? Well, in the course of litigation, it's very common for parties to communicate to each other admissions in relation to facts that might be in dispute and to also communicate offers of settlement to the between the opposing parties' legal representatives. And this is always done on a without prejudice basis. Now, these confidential disclosures are a great benefit to narrowing the issues in dispute and to early resolution of the proceedings. See Field and Commissioner of Railways. Communications that are titled without prejudice are inadmissible as evidence because um, they can't be tendered because the privilege of that communication is owned by both parties and therefore without the consent of both parties between whom the communication is, you can't admit it as evidence. This form of privilege is afforded um, to without prejudice documents as a matter of public policy because it allows the parties to explore resolution of the matter without fear that making admissions or communicating offers of settlement will later be used as evidence against them. So the privilege of without prejudice communication attaches to all offers of settlement and to documentation prepared in connection to the attempt to negotiate settlement of a dispute. It should be noted, however, that the privilege afforded to such material exists with respect to the dispute it concerns and may not be privileged in relation to any subsequent disputes or unrelated disputes between the parties. So it's worth bearing in mind how this matter might affect other matters or disputes and relationships between the parties. The privilege also attaches to admissions and not to assertions or allegations. Under section 131 of the Uniform Evidence Law, the common law's protection of without prejudice communication is um, upheld. And the Act seeks to protect communications between persons in a dispute that have been prepared in connection with an attempt to negotiate a settlement. Similar to the common law, section 131, subsection 2C of the Evidence Act provides that evidence of such communications can only be adduced if the consent of the parties is obtained. Terming communication without prejudice will not automatically attract privilege unless litigation has been commenced or is reasonably anticipated. A court will again look behind the form of the document and inquire into the substance of it to determine whether or not it truly is a without prejudice communication and to understand the position of the parties at the time the communication was made. Now, unlike legal professional privilege, without prejudice uh, privilege is owned by both parties, as I said before, and both parties have to waive it. Now, the exception to this is that uh, where there's an offer of settlement that is made or documentation created that says, without prejudice, save as to costs. Here, the intention of communicating um, such a, an offer is that the parties making an offer of settlement that is confidential, but the party reserves the right to call for production of that letter and to later admit that as evidence about legal costs once the matter is determined by the court. So take an example. Let's say you've got a case on foot. You, as the defendant, make an offer that is without prejudice, save as to costs, to settle the matter on the basis of $20,000 plus legal costs to be agreed or assessed. That offer is rejected by the plaintiff and the matter proceeds to hearing. The plaintiff subsequently awarded $10,000 plus costs. 
Well, at that time, you'll be calling for production of that without prejudice letter that you wrote much earlier in the proceedings, and you'll be arguing that you're entitled to your legal costs from the date of that letter to the date of trial, because the plaintiff could have settled the matter on a more advantageous basis, but refused to do so, incurring further costs and time delayed. The principles of this are established in the case of Calderbank and Calderbank, 1975 judgment of the House of Lords, and we often call these letters without prejudice, save as to cost, Calderbank letters. Um, such a letter and such an option and the exception to privilege is also permitted under the Uniform Evidence Law at Section 131, subsection 2H. So do have a look at that. So just to recap, in terms of legal privilege, there's two types, advice privilege, litigation privilege. Advice privilege attaches to confidential information exchanged between a lawyer and their client for the dominant purposes of providing legal advice. Now, how far advice privilege extends was considered in the case of Pratt Holdings and the Commissioner for Taxation. Important case, take note of it, because in that matter, the client engaged an accounting firm they were having a dispute with the Commissioner of Taxation and they needed an accounting firm to first give them financial advice on their tax position in order to then seek the legal advice that they had to have about the prosecution brought by the tax office. Now, the client claimed privilege, um, advice privilege, on that accountant's report when it was sought in discovery. And the court found that the financial advice was a necessary step to facilitate the giving of legal advice. Thus, the accounting report was privileged. See also, as a contrast, AWB and Cole, number five. Now, litigation privilege, that attaches to confidential information created or prepared for the dominant purpose of litigation that exists or is reasonably anticipated. Now, there is some argument about what reasonable anticipation might be and how far ahead that extends. And that issue was considered in the case of Mitsubishi Electric Australia Limited and the Victorian Work Cover Authority 2002 judgment. Uh, also, too, Justice Lockhart noted in the Trade Practices Commissioner Sterling that litigation privilege um, extends to those communications that pass not only between a lawyer and their client, but also between a lawyer and a third party um, if the lawyer is communicating with that third party for the purposes of use in evidence in litigation. So uh, litigation privilege can extend to incorporate communications between third parties as well. Take, for example, a lawyer writing to an expert um, and that expert report may not subsequently be produced or relied upon. That documentation is clearly privileged. Well, we've just scratched the surface with privilege, but it's good to be cognizant of how it works and how you claim it and why it can be a very important factor that prevents you from providing discovery in the course of litigation. Often hotly contested in interlocutory applications, and if you ever get the chance to sit in on one in a court, I'd encourage you to do so. Thanks for listening.